We have some exciting news to share. Future Hindsight is now in partnership with Lyceum, a new audio platform for the curious and creative to listen, learn, and connect. Sounds like it's a perfect place for us. Here's a message from the founder. Hi, I'm Zachary Davis. I'm the host of two podcasts, Ministry of Ideas, which explores the philosophy behind everyday concepts, and Writ Large, a new podcast about the books that change the world. I love educational podcasts. I love listening to them and talking about them. I want everyone to have that chance. And so I've built a new platform called Lyceum, which makes it easy to discover great educational podcasts and have conversations about them. There are more than a million podcasts out there. We've done the hard work of sifting through them and finding only the very best education shows to listen to. Shows like the one you're listening to right now. So if you love learning, Download Lyceum today on the App Store or Google Play, or visit us at lyceum.fm. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Thomas O. Melia. He's Washington director at PEN America, an organization that protects free expression in the United States and around the world. Previously, as a fellow with the Human Freedom Initiative at the George W. Bush Institute, he led efforts to reinvigorate American leadership in defense of human rights and democracy. It's always a problem when free speech is suppressed because we don't know the reality of what's going on around us. And in a time of a public health emergency where people need to know what's safe and unsafe in terms of where you go or how you behave or what kind of medicine might be useful. If people are afraid to speak their minds, then the public health is in danger. So that's the most conspicuous danger in this kind of a moment. We discuss how various governments across the globe are using the cover of COVID-19 to curtail civil liberties, suppress free speech, and arrest political opponents. Just like many of you, we at Future Hindsight are also working from home, so we reached Tom through a podcast remote recording platform. Unfortunately, the recording is not as high quality as we'd like it to be, but we hope that you can still enjoy our conversation. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. What is the most obvious example of authoritarianism taking root under COVID. We see episodes both at home and abroad where under cover of corona, governments seek to restrict civil liberties. I mean, it's obvious they're making us stay at home these days, right? In some places, it's illegal to go out and about, you know, in our daily lives. So there's major infringements on civil liberties in the United States and around the world most of which people are voluntarily agreeing to do. Although, as we've seen in recent days, the United States, a growing number of protests by people who exercising their free speech rights to say, no, I don't want to be locked up at home anymore. We saw recently the Navy Captain Brett Crozier on the aircraft carrier in Guam. He was fired from his job for speaking up on behalf of his sailors in a very conspicuous effort to silence his free speech. If this can happen in the United States, imagine what can happen in fully authoritarian countries around the world. And we do see that happening from Russia to China to Hungary 
to Egypt and elsewhere. What's happening in China? Just uh, in recent days, we saw Hong Kong arrest some of the democratic political leaders who have always been critics of Beijing's influence in the semi-autonomous Hong Kong region. And now they've been arrested under cover of corona, that the, the emergency requires that they not be out there complaining about the measures that have been taken in China to control the spread of the virus. Previously, several independent investigators who were trying to figure out what the real story was in Wuhan, they were developing stories that said that many more people were sick, many more people had died than the government was admitting to. They disappeared from the streets. There are several of them that have been imprisoned without any public acknowledgement that they've been detained, without any formal charges being filed. There are individuals who frequently go out and film things or research things, and they post their information online. And those that were doing that to uncover the story of the virus's origins in Wuhan have mostly disappeared. In a place that's somewhat less tightly run, Russia, we have seen one of the most prominent independent newspapers, Novaya Gazeta, took down a story about how in the region of Chechnya, where a very militant and repressive local warlord called Ramzan Kadyrov has been both insisting on very strict quarantine measures, punishing people very harshly for violating them, and he himself walks about freely in the streets and meeting people he wants to. He was upset about a story that was uncovering how he was unevenly implementing his own policies in his own region. And the story that described that in the Novaya Gazeta was taken down when he threatened them because the editors were afraid that their writers were going to be harmed or killed for their accurate reporting on what was going on in Chechnya. Right, right. So then you have basically two things. One is being anti-free press and free speech, essentially. And the other one is being anti-coverage of the response to COVID. In China, not only did they silence the protesters, we don't know where they are, but they have also expelled reporters from the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. What is the effect for our society when free speech is suppressed? It's always a problem when free speech is suppressed because we don't know the reality of what's going on around us. And in a time of a public health emergency where people need to know what's safe and unsafe in terms of where you go or how you behave or what kind of medicine might be useful, if people are afraid to speak their minds, then the public health is in danger. So that's the most conspicuous danger in this kind of a moment. Just to loop back to the American scene again, that's why the efforts by the current administration to muzzle scientists at the CDC from speaking about their research and speaking about what they know about the, the origins and spread of the virus are so concerning. If the truth can't be known, then scientific process cannot go forward. And that directly affects the public health at this moment here and in other countries. Yes, of course. At this time, it is so vital for public safety to have the appropriate information out there. If the government wants to stay in power, even an authoritarian one, why would they not share the pertinent information to keep the population safe? What do you think? Well, sometimes it's a question of competence. Repressive governments tend not to always reward highly competent 
officials in their civil service or bureaucracy. They value loyalty and political allegiance much more than competence. So in many of these cases, the failures of government would undermine their public profiles of being the best answer for the nation. You know, only I can save you. But when it comes out that they have not taken the right steps, in this case, to deal with the spread of the virus, or have not been fair in the distribution of protective equipment to different regions of the country, or if they have not been forthcoming about what the true state of the spread of the disease is, then that undermines their credibility and their reputation for being powerful and solving the nation's problems. Remember, in, in a repressive society, people either implicitly or explicitly trade some freedoms for what they think they're going to get on the other side from a government, like stability or competence or economic performance. But if they're seen not to be getting those things, then they wonder why their civil liberties are being restricted. And so the, the stress on the governments, the unhappiness by the people will mount. And I would not be surprised if there were some governments that would fall, if not during, but soon after this uh, health crisis passes, because people are just going to say this government failed us. What do you think is going to happen here in the United States with the current onslaught on free speech and the free press with what we've seen with Brett Crozier and also with silencing the CDC? Because at what point are Americans going to actually say it's enough? We need to know what the truth is and we need to have a proper government response. Well, the truth will come out here. We know that there are enough good investigative journalists. There will be enough whistleblowers. There will be congressional investigations. So the truth will come out about the origins of this disease and about the steps taken to manage the health crisis and the steps taken to deal with the economic consequences. Whether we find it all out between now and the opening up of the economy, between now and the elections in November, that seems to be the question. So it gives the current administration some cover in case it can suppress that information if they even have it before the next election. And in fact, I think this is one of the prime ways that authoritarians in places like Hungary have been able to cement their power. Can you talk a little bit about Viktor Orban? Sure. In the last 10 years since he came back into power, he has become Europe's most clever and determined authoritarian. And he has used this crisis in a really bold way to get his parliamentary majority to grant him essentially unlimited powers to rule by decree without any further resort to the legislature itself. And he's begun using that to punish his political opponents. And rather than put all his energies into managing a public health crisis at this moment, which is supposedly why he got these emergency powers, he has decided to take the money that the state normally gives to municipalities for local services and take half of it back to the national government. Interestingly, in last year's local elections, the opposition parties managed to secure control of half a dozen of the largest cities in Hungary, including Budapest. So he's using this crisis to defund his political opponents so they will look less successful when future elections roll around. So that's a, a very specific example of the way that an authoritarian like Orban can use this crisis moment to punish his political opponents. Well, in a way, I think the Trump administration is doing the same thing here 
casting stones at Democrats who are insisting on certain things for everyday people, but being cast as being anti-business. Also, it's really effective for the president to have a daily press briefing, putting himself in front of Americans every day and spewing lies. In terms of a, a classic authoritarian playbook tool, having this press conference every day, what do you think the American people are really learning about this administration right now? Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, we've become such a polarized nation where people look at the same thing and see it very differently. I presume most people look at the bluster and the lies and the shouting down of journalists asking serious questions and see that Mr. Trump is failing at this moment of crisis and that they will look for another alternative in November. At the same time, there are people who believe what he says, even when he changes his story from one day to the next. There are some people that follow him through the rabbit hole or through the looking glass, and they're perfectly comfortable with that. But I think the larger American public sees this for what it is, which is a failed response by our national government that has been somewhat balanced by proactive measures at the state and local level to do what the public health professionals have told us is necessary to do. So notwithstanding his efforts to shut down the truth and to rewrite the recent narrative constantly, I'm hopeful that the American people will see it for what it is and vote accordingly. What gives you the sense that most Americans see it for what it is? A couple of things come to mind. One is the recent voting in Wisconsin, where in the middle of this health crisis, a primary election went forward, and Wisconsin being a state that in 2016 very narrowly voted for Donald Trump. And in the recent primary election, the results were interesting in that the anti-Trump candidate for the state Supreme Court won decisively. The turnout, despite the health crisis, was notable and strongly supported Joe Biden on the Democratic side. So I see in a swing state like Wisconsin, a shift in the voting behavior that makes me cautiously optimistic that you know, Wisconsin would go the other way come November. It's difficult to know how people are really going to vote several months from now, but the polling that's out there suggests that public confidence in Mr. Trump's handling of this crisis continues to decline, and that people appreciate the credibility of the public health professionals when they are allowed to speak freely. I wanted to change tracks a little bit here and talk about surveillance, because under the guise of needing to do contact tracing, a lot of governments have already embarked on a huge project of mass surveillance, most notably China, which has cameras everywhere. I saw a video of a drone approaching a young woman who was walking by herself and ordered her to turn around and go home. And we're talking about that here. They're talking about tracking people with Fitbits or other fitness trackers uh, in Germany, which are meant to be anonymous. But even so, all of these things can be misused, abused for purposes of surveilling the population. What are the immediate dangers and the long-term dangers? The dangers are inherent in measures that in a short-term urgent crisis situation are reasonable trade-offs in sacrificing some civil liberties or some privacy in the interest of a larger good like getting control of this kind of uh, pandemic outbreak. And most people would say, sure, take my temperature or you know, track whether I'm staying at home like I'm supposed to. But 
once these habits get established, that the government can take your temperature anytime you go into a public building or across the border, they may want to keep doing that indefinitely into the future. Once they start to track you on your phone with a drone, with closed circuit TV cameras in various public places, through the technology, it's going to be very tempting and hard for governments to not want to have that access to all your private information. And in our case, apparently, Mr. Jared Kushner is working with some private companies in some kind of scheme that is yet to be fully explained or revealed to come up with a data collection system that will take public health data from people across the country and put them into some kind of database that they can track who's moving where. That's very scary to think that that's being outsourced to some enterprise, some corporate enterprise with insider connections to the Trump family. That makes me very, very nervous. The danger is that once these things get started in a moment of crisis, they continue afterwards. Those of us who remember 9-11 remember that a week before that, you could walk into an airport and get on an airplane without slowing your pace. After 9-11, society pretty much agreed that we would go through the intrusive surveillance of our luggage and our pockets as a concession to public safety and our own safety. I'm concerned that after this COVID crisis, that the metal detectors may also become temperature detectors. Who knows, you know, before long, we might be doing blood checks at the airports or border crossings or public buildings in the same way that we now go through metal detectors. So it's, it's easy to imagine if the technology moves just a smidge forward, that our most personal medical information will also be tracked. That's why it's important for people at the congressional and other parts of government to push back and say that we need to really make sure there's a sunset provision to any of these measures that are taken. And then presuming the next Congress, which hopefully will be after this pandemic has been brought under control, that we'll have some serious discussions about privacy and surveillance in the post-COVID period. Well, I hope the Congress does exactly that, but I'm not 100% hopeful. In this context, what are two things I could be doing as an everyday person, specifically about the surveillance problem? I mean, in the first instance, every time we sign up for a department store, a company, a movie channel, we are agreeing to be surveilled. And what's been interesting is that this is mostly that we're being surveilled by corporate America to track our consumer habits so that they can put advertisements in front of us. And people seem to be okay with that in ways that are kind of alarming to me. And I would just do less of that. I do as little Amazon shopping as I can, and I try to go to local businesses as much as I can uh, to keep them alive another day. I think the more that we patronize the largest businesses, the, the Walmarts, the Amazons, etc., the more that we are conceding that we will be surveilled and governed and ruled by them. So that's one major area. The second thing is to draw a very sharp line, red line on the medical surveillance, because I can see the temptation will be to say, get your blood tested to see if you've got the virus or the antibodies. And once the government starts collecting you know, blood samples, then they're going to know a lot more about you than that you may or may not have had the coronavirus. And that opens up the whole Pandora's box. That would be the biggest intrusion by surveillance. 
Yeah, that's right. I haven't thought about it that way. I was listening to an article today about how we need to have extensive blood testing before we can reopen the economy and go back kind of to the way that we once were. And now that you're saying that, it's like, well, maybe we won't. <laughs> maybe we won't do that. Maybe we don't want to do that. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I guess I'm hopeful that this stay-at-home period that so many of us are going through will give us a renewed appreciation for getting out and about and meeting our neighbors and friends and coworkers and enjoying the social contact in ways that we hadn't appreciated before. I think people will appreciate people more and the chance to talk and laugh and enjoy with people face-to-face -face in ways that we took for granted, I think, up until this point. I love it. The human aspect of this, that's uh, really profound. Thank you. Well, thanks for the invitation to join you. Tom's answer about what makes him hopeful was completely unexpected to me. I really miss in-person contact with my friends, my family, and my colleagues. And I thought it was good to be reminded out loud that we can look forward to this again one day and to never take in real life interactions for granted. I'm an eternal optimist when it comes to the resilience of humans, and perhaps this is why I continue to believe that COVID-19 will be the catalyst for us to right our society's inequities and to find a new balance that champions justice, dignity, and equality. It's very hard to see that right in this moment with 3,000 COVID deaths per day and rising. The whistleblower report filed by Rick Bright who is the ousted top vaccine scientist, and the flip-flopping on winding down the coronavirus task force and then reversing that announcement the next day. If we want a future that serves all of us, we should start with Tom's recommendation to support small businesses instead of megastores, reject being voluntarily surveilled by corporations, and be vigilant about the collection of our personal medical data. Next week, our guest is Lee McIntyre. He's the author of Post-Truth, published by MIT's Essential Knowledge Series, a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University, and an instructor in ethics at Harvard Extension School. I define Post-Truth as the political subordination of reality. I think that it's a tactic that authoritarians and their wannabes use to corrupt our belief, not just in specific truths, but in the idea that we have a way to pursue truth outside a political context. So I don't think it's really a failing of knowledge so much as one of politics. We discussed the role of decades of science denial and the rise of fake news in ushering in a new post-truth era and what we can do to support the idea that truth matters and rebuild trust. Our conversation will kick off a new season for Future Hindsight. We'll be focusing on misinformation in politics and the media and cover everything from the viral nature of fake news to ethics and political communications, how to employ a truth sandwich, and in what way the alt-right has warped the American imagination. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumpul. 
Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.